Welcome to this episode of the Tez Magazine Debrief. Uh, I'm John Severs and I am joined this week, as usual, by 16.3 thousand followed Gwony Hallahan and 2.5 thousand followed Dan Worth. Yes, I lost that one. Yeah, why am I mentioning the Twitter followers of our two intrepid podcasters? Well, we'll find out in feature one. Well, discussion one, sorry, in our uh, 21st of May debrief podcast. Okay, Dan, why am I talking about our Twitter followers and 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 giving Gronya a big head because she's got more than both of us? She has got a lot of followers, hasn't she? Um, you've got, what, 10,000? I think it sort of comes from the job. When I stepped up to editor, suddenly it went a bit mad because people suddenly realised they can get stuff from you. Um, yeah, you're, you're closing Gronya down, though. The, the yeah, race is on. But why, yeah. why are we talking about this? Because this is in this week's TES, there's a really good article about teacher influencers by Christina Quain, um, talking about some of those teachers who like Gronya, who's not a teacher, but you know, has that sort of influencer presence because they have so many followers and people really like what they've got to say and they sort of articulate themselves very well or they share really good ideas. And somehow some of these people just, just end up with that really big following. And there's probably lots of people out there who've sort of attempted a similar thing but haven't reached those numbers and some do. Um, and then how that happens is probably a whole other world. But uh, in, the, in the piece that sort of looks at what, what's it like to be one of these influencers, you know, is it is it all a sort of great money spinning gig and, and sort of, you know, parties galore and being sort of papped by, um, by fans? And probably not quite like that, the reality. It's not quite, you know, that you can get a bit of, you know, free stuff out of it or maybe some partnerships, but it doesn't sound like it's a huge money spinner. But it's an interesting one. Like the, the bit I took away the most interesting for me, though, and I think the thing that will be most interesting to teachers at all levels and, and leaders is, is the policies that schools may or have or maybe don't have around kind of social media use in school and you know, what do you do if you have a teacher who's suddenly got thousands of followers and, and he's always putting pictures up and, and suddenly is that your classroom, the school's classroom in the background or is that a, a child's piece of work they're praising and you know, do they know that actually that's, that's something that they have to get the parents' approval of? And I suspect most people are pretty savvy about this now, but I could also imagine a sort of a young, you know, very TikTok savvy teacher coming in and building up a very massive following and not, being fully aware that some of the rules. So it's a really good piece and shining a light a little bit on this kind of, we all know it exists, but actually what's it like for these teachers and, and what do you have to think about? Because there's some nice comment from a law partner at a law firm as well and some insights on the things to be aware of. So yeah, it all works very nicely. So hence why all the Twitter follower chat. I think um, I, I, I'm with you. The thing I took away was social media policy because at TES we're pretty tight on, on what our employees tweet in a professional capacity. And there's a certain tone, a certain brand value in, in it, you have to maintain it. It's a professional account. And I think what the piece explores quite nicely is that there's, there's been this sort of creep of teacher influences where they, they've become quite powerful, well, very powerful in some instances, and perhaps the social media policies haven't caught up. And perhaps some of the school leaders don't even know a lot of this is happening. And I think what was interesting is it started as sort of, you know, a few, and now we've got a lot. And a lot of these teacher influencers have book deals and a lot of their content is school content. So it's my school does this or this is the right way to teach. And it's great that it's it's pedagogical in nature. And and for the most part, <laughs> there is quite a, a dark side to Twitter, which I'm sure we'll come on to. But um, and Instagram. But I think there's a there, there's a real trend now for saying, well, in my school, I do this and this is the right way. And I, I can see a school leader being quite uncomfortable with the school being presented in such a way. I mean, 
there's a there's a rule, isn't there? I mean, would you say it direct to a parent's face? And I look at quite a lot of the posts that go out, and I think, well, I don't think you would. And I don't know. You're the you're the resident influencer here, Gronya. You you built up a big presence on on Twitter before you were at Tez while you were teaching, and that's one of the reasons we asked you to write. And so we're we're culpable in in this, but also it worked out well. Yeah, Twitter worked out really well for me, didn't it? But um, it's. It's something that uh, Katie Tollett brings up in, in the piece to, and she speaks about job interviews and what do you do? You know, you've, you've worked at a school, they're happy with your online content, you're towing the line in terms of what that school's social media policy dictates and they might be happy with you sharing pictures of your classroom and examples of work, you know, as long as the kids' names are redacted with their permissions and all of those kinds of things. But if another school with a different type of policy looks at your social media account and thinks, no way we're not going to have a teacher tweeting that kind of content at our school then like Katie raises like it's not it's not necessarily a big thumbs up just because you've got loads and loads of followers doesn't mean you're going to go from one school to another and it be seen as a as a really positive thing and this is why lots of teachers do lock down their accounts when they're applying for jobs or they you know they try and um go back and and perhaps amend some of the things that they've tweeted in the past because it's it's um, something you can get carried away with when you're online and you're, you're tweeting and you're you know in the moment in the middle of an argument you might say things that perhaps a few days later you go back and look at and think that was probably a bit unwise and another reason why lots of teachers that I know have an automatic delete on their their Twitter account so after a year all of their posts get deleted so we don't have that awkward like we were talking just the other week about Facebook Facebook memories. Mm. No about if, auto delete this is exciting. If I had a Twitter account when I trained. I would be deleting all of those posts now mm. because I don't think I would stand by the things that I thought when I was a trainee. Now I think that things have changed too much and that your, your experience in the classroom changes you so much as a person that I wouldn't be happy having that as a representation of what I thought and what I believed out there in the public sphere. Like 10 years later. Totally, yeah. Well, there are so many stories out there of people getting jobs and, and things and then someone discovering a tweet they made. Yeah, 10 years ago. And then, yeah. I mean, I kind of thought when this all started, I kind of always remember having conversations vaguely with people saying, oh, we'd all get used to that. You know, we'd understand that, oh, well, what someone said. Mm. But I guess obviously some things, you know, probably do cross the line regardless of time. But other times you think, well, come on, like, you're, like to your point, they're only 21 or whatever. Like who, who is, who would, one of their 21-year-old thoughts read back to them after they've been given a high-profile job. But we seem to, it seems to often be a sort of thing. So you've got to be, and you've got to sort of play that game, haven't you? You've got to be aware of that mm. and think about I think- it. I think teachers are aware, so like super aware of of the dangers to the kids of this, but there seems to be a real lack of awareness of the permanence, like we're discussing, the permanence of those posts, and the fact that it's publishing is is lost on a lot of people. Like, it, it's no different to us publishing an article, publishing a post on Twitter. You're still you're still um, at the mercy of the laws, the same laws we are, and so you can get sued for libel, and you can get uh sued for defamation and you can and you can you can you can get yourself in a lot of trouble and the only reason they don't normally is that suing a teacher is not a good look and also you're not going to get a lot of cash out of it suing tez is a different matter but it you you see this complete lack of knowledge about what they're doing and and i think that's quite concerning because you know it, it you can't tell a student not to do stuff and then they go online and see you doing it and I, there is an argument that says Hey, we're adults. We're allowed to wear makeup in school. We're allowed to wear earrings. I get it, 
but also just at a base level of, of that relationship building we know is so important. Why wouldn't you just be a bit more cautious online? The same way every other profession is. You know, this isn't just us saying teachers can't have a have a private life because, you know, it, you can, but it's what you put of that private life into the public domain. And, you know, we're very careful. All three of us are careful, aren't we? Mm. Well, I mean, you, you say that, but I guess I, I'm sort of thinking now, I don't know. I mean, 10 years ago, was I? I don't know. I mean, was there a post I made? And, and I, I know stories from, from friends of friends of people in, in other professions who've done very silly things on social media and it's been very disruptive to their career, should we say. Um, and um, yeah, it's, it's a complex area, isn't it? Because, and you like to think you're being careful, but I mean, what you were saying there reminds me of that Alan Davis was, you know, had a very nasty legal experience, didn't he? Because he retweeted something. He retweeted it. He didn't even tweet it himself, but he was, you know, it was it was taken to court and, and you know, and so forth. You can read all about that online. But yeah, it's a very complex area. And you can say, you know, this idea we're talking about influencers, people who sort of reach the top and probably proactively have wanted to get to that level of thousands of followers. And, you know, very well done if you, if you can do that. But also, I suppose it always comes with that. You know, on the journey or when you get there, you've got to be mindful of what... And funny, actually, it makes me think... I've had a few international teachers say to me when I've said, oh, what's your Twitter handle? You know, we'll promote your article and mention a Twitter handle. And they said, oh, I'm not on Twitter. Do you recommend I join and try and build up a following? And I've said to them, well, to be honest, it's so hard now on Twitter. You're probably just better off not, not trying because it's, you'll never, it takes so long to build a following. You say that, but new people come in and they, they gain loads of followers really, really quickly and yeah, I, I would have said the same them, as you <laughs> <laughs> I would have said the same as you Dan but I think it was last month somebody pointed out to me a few new accounts that had just rocketed I mean I think part of the reason I have so many followers is because I've been on there so long mm. that's that's definitely part of it and um sharing stuff like people like it when you share share resources and that always gets you followers um but I think it's, I would have said, no, Twitter is just so noisy now. It's ed- edgy Twitter is so noisy now. But maybe, maybe that's not true. Maybe that you can build up a big following quickly and, you know, come from nowhere <laughs> and suddenly have thousands and thousands of followers. But I think there's another side of it as well, where when you share a lot of yourself online and it starts to seep over, so it's not just a professional account, the teachers in this article all share their professional work, their classroom work, but they also do show their personalities and they show some of their private life as well. And I think that it's it's the same things that we say to the children, to the students in the schools. When you do give a lot of yourself away, like be careful about that. Like You don't have to share all of yourself. You're opening yourself up for criticism, for, for people to say nasty things about you. I've... I've had horrible comments about the way that I look or what I've worn and like in nasty DMs and people making like sly little comments. And you just think that for some people that would really hurt their their feelings. Luckily, I've got a really thick skin and I don't (laughs) I can just laugh about that. We should say actually. For fragile people, it can can be quite, you can live or you can live for those likes. You can be so so hungry for the positive affirmations. And I've heard of, of people deleting tweets, not because they regret what they said, but because it didn't get enough attention, didn't get enough likes or didn't get enough retweets, so they delete it. And that's, you, you shouldn't be getting validation from an online social media platform. You should be getting validation from real life people who, who are your friends and that you know in, in real life because the online world is not the same as, as the real world. Hear, hear. I think we should say, though, that Twitter is also a hugely positive force for CPD and professional uh, professional conversations. And mm. there's so much good stuff going on there. And yes, we've concentrated on some of the negative side here. But 
that's only because that's the sort of the, the, the sort of focus of the piece is is looking at okay well is this all rosy and we're saying actually there's a lot of dangers there but we should make clear that some of the best conversations about teaching happen on Twitter as mm. well. Mm. I mean, I do wonder, Gronya, how does how does a Twitter influencer come across in the staff room? I mean, my my brother and my sister are both teachers and, and I mentioned some of the stuff that goes on Twitter and they're a bit like, the geek teacher type, 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 you know, oh God, they won't leave us alone. All I want to do is, you know, go home and, you know, have my life. And why would I want to be tweeting at 10 o'clock about um, retrieval practice, which we'll come to later. But, you know, how, how are they viewed in, in the staff room? Um, I don't think that, I mean, I never sat and spoke about, about Twitter sitting in the staff room. It wasn't, you know, that's not really my, the, 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 the calibre of my chats. Like, I think I've got better conversations than that. But I don't think I've ever worked with a teacher who continually talked about, like their Twitter and the number of followers and like they were doing this and this and this. It's nice to discuss ideas that you've heard shared on Twitter. I think that's a, a fair thing to talk about. But I think talking continually about the number of followers you've got or what, you know, what this person said on Twitter, if that's all you've got to talk about, then you might want to find some hobbies. Brutal from Cronia. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, given that we started by talking about how many followers we've all got, I mean, that's put us in our place, isn't it? But if you want to follow me on Twitter, it's at Dan Work. More <laughs> followers, the better. <laughs> so uh, check out that feature from Christine this week. It's, it's, it, as you can see, it's a good conversation starter and, and maybe you'll find some new people to follow. And, and or if you're a lead, school leader, maybe suddenly you're panicking and searching for all your staff on Twitter. And I, I do hope they're all having productive non-legally problematic conversations. Okay, the second feature we're going to look at today is about writing and specifically about writing in primary schools. And um, what, we, what, what this piece does is say that the way we approach writing in, in school, primary schools is correct in that it sees it as a multifaceted beast. It's not a simple process. Like reading, it's complex. The problem the writers, which is a, an academic and, and a primary school um, head teacher, explain is that the way it's weighted is a problem so that there's too much focus on the logistical or, as the piece puts it, secretarial elements of writing, spelling, grammar, model sentences, um, punctuation. There's not enough creative freedom and permissiveness to connect with what you're writing and to explore ideas. and what the research suggests is that if you don't teach in a way where the child connects with the writing, if they don't feel allowed to explore ideas, then actually you don't get the technical side right either. Teaching the technical side doesn't create a great writer. Actually cre creating a connection with the writing, allowing ideas to be explored, being creative, that actually brings up the technical side. And so this it, it's a plea really for a more holistic way of writing. And I think... You know, I don't, I don't know what you two think. Well, I, I look back at writing and the one thing I remember is when Mr. Watts, who was a hero of a teacher, uh, I think I've mentioned this before on the podcast, got me to write something. And I got carried away with it and he was, there's no brief. And I wrote this thing, it was like nine pages. And I remember that piece more than any other. And it was the best mark I got in year nine. I remember that. And and a lot of the other stuff, even though we we all three of us are from an era where didn't really get a lot of technical writing teaching. <laughs> I don't think I ever had a spag lesson. I think it was still a bit clunky um, in terms of how writing was taught. I feel like a bit forced 
And that was suddenly this moment where you were just completely free. And I think I've got it in a box somewhere. And I don't know what you two think as well about that. Like, do you, your memories of writing in primary school or secondary school, what, 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 what's your view on that? Yeah, well, yeah, big question. I, I totally agree that, that you need that space to be creative. And it made me think, I, was, I, talk, I interviewed Cressida Cowell recently, the children's laureate, as Gronje spoke to her as well. For the, I've got a My Best Teacher podcast coming up there. And she says her absolute defining moment for her when she realised she could be a writer. And she says exactly that when she's about eight years old is her teacher gave her a book where she could just write in it. And there was no, she wasn't going to be judged on the spelling, the grammar or anything like that. It was just a place to write. And that for her was like, she says it was like this amazing moment where I could just, I realised I could be a writer. It didn't matter that I was rubbish at the other bits. And that's important, isn't it? It's like saying, it's like teaching a child, telling them all about a musical instrument, but never letting them play it. You know, like, oh, here's how it works. And that's what, if you press this note, this will happen. But you go, oh, you can't play it though. You've just got to learn it. And it's like, how frustrating would that be when you, you can't spell very well or you're learning the process of sentence string, but you've got this brilliant idea about a dinosaur that comes to life and goes to the supermarket. You know, well, that's a good idea, actually. Um, it's, um, and, you know, Shappy th- Corsandi says it as well, doesn't she? In this week's, um, in that's next, next week's, week's yeah. Yeah, and yeah so she I, talks about that. That was a real yeah. moment in that piece when I was proofing it this morning for that magazine where she was talking about this this poetry book and how then yes, exactly. it led to her A grade. And it was just sort of, sort of felt quite emotional reading it. Yeah, well, the podcast is she does get emotional and, and quite sort of it's, it's, it's moving to hear because she talks about how important that teacher was in exactly the same way as Christa Cow talks about that. And so, and yes, you're right, at school, I remember creative lessons quite well, actually. I remember writing something about some sort of, you know, teenage boy nonsense about some commando infiltrating Russia and stealing secrets from the Kremlin or something. It was just a creative assignment we'd been set. I think I was playing a lot of Metal Gear Solid at the time. So. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yeah, you do remember that. And I do think you need that, that yin and yang of you learn how it works, you, you get a chance to do it. And when you do it, you can't be just judged then entirely on, oh, you completely failed the, the, system, the, the systemic elements of writing. Therefore, this is rubbish. It has to be a little bit of like, oh, this is a brilliant story. I love how you've describe the dinosaur you know it can't just be oh yeah but you forgot your full stop you've got to capitalize this you put the order on because if if that's all it is it's going to put people off right and I think you do need to balance that I was really really lucky in primary school because I am a lousy speller my spelling and my handwriting is really really bad as your editor I've noticed (laughs) (laughs) do you remember what I called uh Dr Guy Meadows and I called him Guy Chambers throughout the whole uh, you, oh, you, you called him the guy who co-wrote Angels with Robbie Williams. <laughs> I was like, I don't think he's called Guy Chambers. Gone yet. I think he might be called Guy Meadows. Yeah, that's not a spelling issue, No, but that, just, that does illustrate how scatty my mind is. And um, because I'd listened to something about Guy Chambers on the radio before I'd written the piece. So obviously my brain doesn't work. In that. I'm going to blame my brains. My brain's yes, filled. Brain, blame the brain. Don't bring in science, John. It doesn't matter. My brain just doesn't work like that. So, yeah, my handwriting was really bad as a child. My spelling was really bad. But my teachers were always really encouraging and let me write and praise me for my writing, even though, I mean, I've, I've looked back at my books. It was ghastly. It should have been covered in red, red pen. You wouldn't have got your pen licence, would you? <laughs> no, no, no one would have given me a pen licence. I've been stuck. I probably would still be writing with a pencil now, which... But you even know. a pen licence, right? Don't even mind. get me started on pen licenses. Okay, maybe we should save that for another pod. Uh, no, carry on then. Let's, let's save that for another pod because we could yeah. be here all, all day. Death to pen licenses. Um, but yes, I was really lucky. And in secondary school, I always had teachers that really encouraged me to write because I loved writing. And my teachers were always really kind and 
at least pretended to have written the, the pages and pages I gave them of the extra story that I wanted to write. And, you know, like, thank you for sharing that, that Gornia. That was lovely. And it was it was really nice. And I think... The whole class is just asleep. Yeah, everyone else has just left. Gornia's been me. Like, reading something the, the length of The Hobbit. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I think that was always really kind of them. And then I got to, like, the end of secondary school and I got into writing like, what I thought were really, really thoughtful essays on different topics. So I got into, like, writing more nonfiction stuff because that's the kind of cool kid I was it's interesting that when writing's looked at it's felt like the people who do it well are, are intuitively good at it you know there's there's something natural to it and I wrote my leader on this this week because I really want to blow apart that myth that you know I speak to people a lot and you know with you as well Gronio and I say you just get a feel for it you know you get a feel if something feels wrong you get a feel of whether it works that's not natural ability it's not intuitive it's practice and it's reading and it's learning and it's hammering away not at the technical aspects of writing but at the i guess it's the it is technical in a way but it's the technical elements of creativity it's the arrangement of thoughts it's the thinking about style it's the thinking about your audience and the more you write for a specific publication, the more natural that process is and the quicker you get, say, at editing. I can see if I'm writing or seeing it's the reason sometimes it's quick is not because I'm naturally any better than anyone else. It's because I've done it a lot and you've been around. And I think that myth of the gifted writer is is really damaging because it, it makes it exclusive and it makes it unattainable. Yeah, totally. What you're talking about there is craft, isn't it? Yes, that's exactly the word. Yeah, it's like you've got the technical know-how, but then you've still got to apply it into something that actually is good to read. And and I always say that when I worked with students at journalism at university, I've said to them like, if you if you read something, you think, oh, that was a really good piece, or conversely, that was a really I didn't that piece didn't. Don't just read it and think that. Think why, like what element, what worked, what didn't. You know, what did you like about it? Where read it again and sort of work out the clever like intro of the use of the kind of the quote that you don't quite understand it draws you in and then it's slowly broken down whatever it might be you know or does the information come at you too fast is there too much data in one bit and then nothing for the rest of the piece and that could have been more laid out and I think yeah you're right it's practice and practice and practice and you just got to keep doing it and, and a lot of people don't write much do they like we do we do all the time but some people they write very rarely so when they come to it it's a real kind of oh god I gotta write something now and this takes time and all yeah. and that's understandable because if you don't do it very often like like we would struggle with something if it was we don't have to you know, just occasionally have to do something. Oh, how do I do it? Like putting a PowerPoint together. You know, some people can probably whiz up a brilliant PowerPoint in temp. I, I can't. I, I'm not no, right. what's, what's the bit again? How do I do that again? And where do I put that box? You know, and I can do it, absolutely, but it doesn't, I don't do it quickly, like in the way that I could turn around a 500 word news story or something, which, like you said, after several years of doing them, I was doing them without even thinking, you know, in, in sort of 10 minutes, but I didn't start at that speed. But I think people do get, oh, I can write, I can't write. And it's like, no, it's, you've just got to keep, if you want to become a writer, just keep, just start practicing. Put in a notebook that no one will ever read if you want, but there's always ways to do it. There's um, there's one of the a writer that I remember, um, one of the journalists I, I love. I can't remember his name, which is really bad. But he said, uh, she said rather, writing writing uh, writer's block is not writer's block. It's just a lack of in, lack of information. It's a lack of interviews. If you, if you mm, get writer's mm, block, mm, you haven't done enough work beforehand mm, to get that piece ready. And I think that's a really key point. But also what you were saying about that looking at reading lots. I mean, me and Gronya, you know, over the years have looked at many pieces and I say, what do you think of that? Why is that wrong? And you'll say, Gronya, you know, that intro's in the wrong place. That should be the intro. That para six should be the first point of call because that's the intrigue. And actually I'm bored by the time I get to that paragraph. And 
that sort of dissection that happens a lot, I think, but it should happen more than it does. I get, you know, my memories, this might have changed a lot, and Gronje, you can call me out on this. My memories of textual analysis are that it was dull and it was and it was really technical and it was Are you like, thinking of like the writer the writer made the curtains blue, that that classic, like why were the curtains yeah, blue? Yeah, and it's just that like we don't know, like mm-hmm. come on. And actually it's I think some you know, looking at how something you know, and, and if we're talking about how they build suspense, we're like, they've used several adjectives. And it's like, well, no, actually, it's about the placement of information. And it's about, it's slightly bigger than a Structural lot of analysis yeah, um, has a made a refocus in the latest GCC changes. And Good. I have always found that much more interesting to teach because you can actually show the craft of the writer. There's a lovely poem called Time by Carol Ann Duffy. And the way that she uses stops and monosyllabic um, words in the, the poem are just when you take it all apart and you show them what's actually been done kids love it because it's amazing like it's such a, a really well crafted poem and it's just genius and from a it, you can take away that authorial intent like what she intended to do with it you can just simply talk about what happens when you read it aloud and how you're forced to slow down and sound like a ticking clock and all that kind of thing and that's that's lovely. That's magical kind of analysis. You can see the kids get excited by that. Sometimes doing the more abstract stuff like, oh, what does this name mean? Oh, this means this. And perhaps they're doing, it's it's all too much, perhaps and possibly. And for many children, they find that too, like, oh, what did you, like, how did you come up with that thought? But if you can teach them actual received interpretations of ideas, then that's more concrete, isn't it? That's more fun because they can feel more certain about it. But if you're just pulling ideas out of the thin air, then it's um it's it becomes a bit more tiresome, doesn't it? And it's harder for them to put it into their own work because they can't see it in other people. So how can they do it themselves? Yeah, I agree. So have a read of that piece. It's a fascinating exploration of writing, and, and it basically comes down to connection and confidence and, and relationships, as a lot of teaching does. Um, but uh, have a read and, and tell us what you think. Okay, going from Gronje's scatty brain to retrieval mm-hmm. practice, it seems slightly apt to me. Yeah, retrieval practice would sort out my um, disorganised brain, wouldn't it? And that's why this week my pick is from primary teacher Kerry Eccles, who has written the uh, How I column about the mystical art of retrieval practice. And it feels a bit mystical because like the best magic tricks, it's very simple. It boils down to just asking questions. Well, maybe a bit more complicated than that, spacing out your questions and repeating content you taught previously just at the moment your students are likely to forget it. And this is something we can all recognise when students insist that they've never been taught something, we've never done this before, miss, and you know you definitely covered it the previous term or they definitely did it the year before with their last teacher, that just time has passed and they've, they've forgotten about it. And Kerry outlines how she didn't go full on into retrieval everything mode, but instead started with maths and kept it focused just on their mathematics knowledge and stripped it right back. So instead of having loads and loads of resources or PowerPoints or WYSI videos, she just had her and her visualizer and a pen and paper and then reaped the rewards with her class maths performance later when it improved after a year of following this new approach. And it sounds simple, and I suppose it won't work for all children because for some, they only need to hear something once and they remember it. And others, you can tell them the same thing again and again and again, and they still don't retain it because I guess that's the nature of memory. Not not everyone's memory is the same. But I had a chance to catch up with Kerry and we spoke a little bit about it. 
thank you for joining me today, Kerry. We've obviously asked you on because you are our writer of the How I column this week, and it's all about how I use retrieval practice. Thank you so much for um, asking me to do this. I'm so excited and can't wait to see the, the finished article. And I know that you sent me a sneaky preview and it looks so brilliant. So yeah, I'm really, really happy and really um, pleased to be part of this experience. So thank you. How could we not? Retrieval practice is something that our secondary colleagues talk about all the time as if they've just invented it. But of course, for primary teachers, I mean, we, we, you can see on your Twitter interactions, people that say, oh, I'd not thought of using this, this with my class. How do I do it? What should I do? So tell me a little bit about what made you decide to start using retrieval practice in the first place? So it's been a bit of a journey for me. So when I joined Twitter originally, it was um, as the basis that I'm a primary school teacher and I'd used Facebook platforms a lot for sharing my ideas. But what I was finding was I'd share things and what wasn't happening, I wasn't getting that interaction back. I was getting kind of, oh, can you send me the planning? And I kind of had someone say to me, um, look, if you go on Twitter, you've got more of an option to have that feedback and get advice. And if you ask questions, you're getting more of an interaction. So I joined Twitter originally with the view to looking at primary schools. But very soon, I realised that there were so many wonderful things being shared by secondary school teachers that actually to open up my experience to look at what other um, key stages were doing was, was really beneficial for my practice. And one of the things that I spotted was when I was going to conferences or visiting schools, I was seeing this buzzword retrieval practice going on. I was thinking, I've not heard of this before. This, this is quite revolutionary. This is great. Why are we not doing this? So it was, uh, it was the start of my journey through seeing on Twitter things that were buzzing and happening within secondary schools. And now tell me about what your memory is like. So your article is brilliant because it gives people a, a starting point. If they want to know how to use it in their classroom, they can get on and do it. And, you know, you give lots and lots of handy practical tips. But I'm interested to know... What are you like in terms of memory? Do you find sometimes when you're doing the retrieval practice questions that sometimes you've forgotten it too? Uh, to be honest with you, I think because I've been doing it for, with because I've had year five for quite a while now, I've taught year five for four years, I think I'm very secure in the subject. I think I would probably struggle if I was in a brand new year group because then you've got to actually ultimately keep thinking yourself, what was it we did? What, what do we do? So um, for me... I'm quite um, comfortable because I've been in this year group for a little while that I actually do know what's going on. But in terms of like my memory and retrieval practicing other things, I often forget uh, what day of the week it is. So often I'll write on the day. I put my birthday on the board the other day and the children were like, circles. And then even this morning I wrote it was the 20th. So so little things I, <laughs> I don't have a great memory for. But in terms of my um, academic knowledge of what I'm doing, I think I'm quite secure. So And it helps that... Um, I'm starting to think about like prior years and because I've been moved around school over the 16 years I've taught, I started in EYFS, I went to year one, year two, year three. So because I've been in all these year groups, I do have quite a good knowledge of what 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 is going on. I appreciate that if you're just brand new to a school or if you've only ever taught one year group, having that wider knowledge of what's going on in the rest of the school is is, is, is a lot harder. It is a lot harder. Now, I was wondering something. I really want to ask you this because when I read your article, I was like, this is great. This sounds fantastic. Yes, 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 yes. Read about your results. The results are really impressive. But I want to know, did you have students who week on week just always nailed it? And there was some, Yeah, there were some students who were very, very good, but there was always certain questions that we'd pick up on. And one of the things that I... Um, 
really thinks very, very important with retrieval practice is that it, it doesn't become a tick box exercise. I talk about that a lot when I do, like if I'm delivering conferences or presentations, there's this kind of worry that it becomes something tagged onto your um, busy teaching journey and there's nothing done with it. So one of the things that I always make sure I include within my retrieval practice is the children are marking, they're reflecting, and they've got the courage to say to me, actually, I didn't get that one wrong. I didn't get that one right today. And there will always be certain elements that children don't get. So there is never a hundred hundred percent perfection within um, what I'm seeing but if that was the case that's when I think well maybe I need to challenge and up the scale of my questions and and actually not just keep it as I'm delivering this if I see that children are nailing it particularly within maths for instance I know that I have put in questions where they all now are getting that right and I've said to them I don't need to use this anymore so rounding for instance rounding in maths my children are absolutely solid now and I know that's something that historically they've found really really hard and I've said to them today look I don't need to put this into our retrieval practice anymore you are all 100% getting this and if there's a couple of children who aren't what I do is I create an additional aside just for those children so they're not forgotten so they're not actually just because 24 out of the 26 have got it those two who haven't aren't suddenly thinking well I suddenly didn't get that so it's, it's always important that they have that recognition as well yes I can I can see why if they're all getting it then you've got to change up a bit haven't you it's definitely, got to, definitely yeah you can't let them feeling too good about themselves can you? <laughs> and actually one of the things that research has shown is actually retrieval practice happens when the brain works harder so if you're creating a scenario where they really have to think harder and deeper, they've got more chance of actually remembering that. So if you're delivering the same kind of questions that they're getting easily, then you've got that kind of understanding that maybe a year later they might forget that. Whereas if you're creating a more challenging, deeper approach to the question, so you can actually have the same thing, but it in, put the question and phrase it in a harder way that makes them have to work harder. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Because of course you can... You can mix it up that way too, can't you? Like the 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 phrase and the question. Yeah, oh, that's that's another good tip. Thank you, Kerry. And anything else? If you were going to recommend to a colleague that they're going to start retrieval practice with their class, and they were saying, "Oh, I'm going to go in. This is a great idea. I'm going to do maths, and I'm going to do English, and I'm going to do history." What would your advice be if they wanted to do you? You went in very cautiously, didn't you? You went in. Yeah, just I, think, with maths. I think. I think for me, it's it's something that you have to recognise that we have a very busy teaching work life, and um, actually, you can't possibly within primary, particularly, we ten plus subjects and what weighting you put on those um, needs to be thought about. And actually, if you try and do everything all at once. Um, if you're thinking about cognitive overload that we look at with children, your own cog overload is going to be <laughs> going to feel stress. And what what you run the risk of if you're asking a teacher to do this because it's brilliant, if they are overwhelmed, it's going to become a stressful situation for them. They're not going to enjoy it. They're not going to see the benefit. And actually, when we feel like that, the children pick up on that very much. I'm very much that I'm this magic mirror in the classroom. And even if I don't particularly um like a subject I'm not the biggest fan of teaching um French to children my pronunciation isn't the best but sacre bleu <laughs> if I go into that thinking I'm going to be a magic mirror and pretend that this is great and I love it then the children feed back on that if I go into it thinking oh this isn't something I appreciate the children and the same with retrieval practice if I'm doing something that's I'm finding onerous 
and I'm delivering it in a way that I'm feeling stressed, the children will pick up on it. And ultimately, you want it to be a collaborative journey where you're doing it together. I'm very much a big believer in part of um, metacognition and the child's journey within the classroom. They need to understand the why, the how, and the value. And for me, that's why I started slowly. I thought, I want to get it right. I want to take one subject slowly and make sure I've perfected that model and then when I'm securing that one model, the children are securing that model. And then as a journey together, we move on to something else. So I, I've spent like this is the last two years I've been doing it. So now within my classroom, I'm very confident. I'm very fluent. The children are used to that. We start the same way each lesson, whatever subject it is. We do some kind of retrieval practice and they're familiar with that model. But for me, to begin with, there's no way you could possibly do that. We'd all become overwhelmed and we'd probably all sit in the corner crying and shaking a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that fantastic call for less action, I think we'll stop there. Thank you so much, Kerry. And now I thought it'd be particularly apt to have a Tez Magazine debrief retrieval practice quiz. Ooh. Okay. That's my, f- that's, that, that's like stamping, you know. That- yeah. These are questions that you should know if you've been listening to the podcast the last couple of months. So question number one. I've been on some of those podcasts. (laughs) I was very, very kind, John, and I've only asked questions that I know you were definitely here for. Because I'm that kind of teacher. Um, Number one, sweat has no scent. What so what makes BO so stinky? Bacteria breaking down the sweat. Boom! One point to John. Number two. I was at a competition. I don't know. I always like to add an element well, it is of now. <laughs> yeah, it is now. We just put our hands up. <laughs> this should be like low stakes. Um, nobody wins. You just win inside. What inanimate object stood for election in Ecuador and won? Oh, a shoe powder. Well done, Dan. Bloody well hell. remembered. I did Number not remember that. Three. I still don't remember it. I haven't retrieved it, even though you've told me. Yeah, you're one of those kids that you can just say it again and again and again. Crap. We've never done this. Um, question three. What did Bear Grylls scratch into the bell tower when he scaled? The bell tower Eaton. Yeah, his initials, yeah. Well done, both tower. of you. According to the piece on nudge theory, what should you display on walls to encourage students to be more obedient and polite people? Eyes. I was going to say eyes. No, it wasn't eyes. That was um, that, that was a, That was to make people behave which I uh, guess kind of... I'll give you half a mark for that. Uh, but it was like positive, like, we care and respect our school and those uh, kind of slogans, and that will uh, make yeah. them behave. And I said it wouldn't because that was where the kids used to all stand and smoke. Mm. Okay, and this one, Dan, especially for you. Yeah. What does 33 times 33 make? Oh, <laughs> it's, not, it's not 999. I think it's... Is it 1089? Yes! Whoa! Now that is retrieval. (laughs) (laughs) Our new quiz show, Retrieval. (laughs) Uh, I enjoyed that, Gonya. But see, I know that not because I've done the mathematical Mm. working out of it. I just know the fact, which is what we also talked about, about is that, I mean, you're good at maths or have you just got a good memory? And I think it's, for me, I've just got a good memory. I'm not good at maths. And also, but it's also because you got it wrong. And so it's more firmly embedded... Yeah. So I, yes, I went and learned. There's it. an emotional connection to mm. the to, to the to the information, which is what Jared Cooney Horvath always thought, talks about. It's like he gets very, very, very frustrated with trad prog debates because he's like, it's both. You need an <laughs> emotional connection and the information. Come on, people. And um, 
I'm a bit with him on that one, to, yeah. to be honest. That was, uh, that was good. I feel like we should come up with a question for you, Gronia. Um What oh, in the no. in the game of um, when we played? Would I lie to you? What was the fact? What was my fact that was true? Well, you had the one about playing the you, about running a marathon. No. But you also talked about playing a piano. Well, yeah. So, what's your answer? I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. Oh no, no, no! Wasn't it about it, the, the fact? Wasn't a marathon? The fact was a cycle race, wasn't it? Well, you, you're all in the vague. I can't area. remember what the, the real fact was, was. Was being able to play the the chorus to Bohemian Rhapsody on the oh. piano. The, the other thing was winning a bike race, which wasn't true. And the other That's one was meeting right. Prince Charles, which also wasn't wasn't true. true. I thought you were going to ask Gwenya how many kids she bullied when she was a teacher, or how many she's told us about. I don't think she could remember various podcasts. I'd just like to add a disclaimer, I didn't bully anybody. And I think that's every podcast. My students adored me. They adored you. Um, oh, I had an email come in from a teacher. Oh, hang on. Yeah, shout go out, on. shout okay. outs to finish. This, this is, is a new <laughs> this is the, this is a new one. So her name's Holly and she's a trainee teacher. And she and her mentor both listen to the pod as they have this issue about a child in their class who's got a bit of a problem at the moment. Um, so she listened to it and then she sent it to her mentor and her mentor listened to it and then they talked about it. And her mentor shared some tips, some tips that they've used in the past, like um, giving them advice about going through the myths about deodorant application, because apparently it's better to put on deodorant at night time. Really? Apparently. Wow. Mm-hmm. So you talk but that's like quite an, so you can talk about that in a class and it doesn't feel like we're telling you to put deodorant on. So they do it in like a some fun yeah, facts about deodorant. Sense. And um and also her mentor said that in the past they've kept a spare change of clothes for students whose parents have like particularly chaotic lives and don't have access to a washing machine and so that was a way that they the child came to school just a little bit earlier and got changed into the fresh pair of clothes and they laundered the other pair and they did it like that and that that solved the problem and it was a a bullying issue and that really helped with that child Mm. and she also said that her mentor shared a story this is a really happy story it's really nice so the student had a really bad bo problem that was partly caused because of her weight management. And so when they, they sort of sat and they, they talked about it, the student, she said the reason why she didn't like doing exercise was because she worried about sweating. But of course, by not exercising, it was making the weight problem worse. And it was like this awful, vicious circle. Mm. So they tackled it. Instead of going down like, well, just wear lots of deodorant route, they got her um, joining a, a different sort of sport. I won't say the sport because it's identifiable, but she took up a like, quite unusual sport and... But that tackled the BO problem because she mm. lost weight and then she didn't have a BO problem because that was that was solved and that was a, a really nice story. Oh, it's nice to have a shout-out. Let's have more shout-outs. Shout-out to Holly and her mentor. Thank you for listening. I hope you listen <laughs> more. I hope that just wasn't a one-off. And that <laughs> <laughs> just because it was about BO. But I'm sure they're listening again. Um, that's all we've got time for this week. So uh, do you tune in next week and make sure you check out all those features and tell us your thoughts. If you enjoyed listening to this week's issue of the magazine Debrief Podcast and want to read more of Tez Magazine online and have it delivered to your door, subscribe now at tez.com forward slash store.